your help with the sermon. Uh, we're going to read the entire chapter, chapter 25, which will take several minutes. I try to be at my best when I'm reading God's Word. But what you need to do is you need to be an engaged, careful listener and reader as well. Because when we're done with the reading, with the time that remains, uh, the outline is mostly going to be observation and application. So you'll need to remember the details of the action and who's who. Uh, we'll meet some characters, and it's not a complicated passage, but there's such a wonderful lesson to be had here about our God and his faithful provision. So I'll need your help to, to pay extra attention as we read this entire chapter from God's Word, from the English Standard Version of God's Holy Word. Chapter 25, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Mahan whose business was in Carmel. That's a city, not a product. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and behaved badly. He was a Calebite. David heard uh, in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you, you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. And we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David... And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all this house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. 
Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me before I come after you. But she said, but she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God, do so to the enemies of David, and more so, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who will follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be found in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling." And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. Then Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. 
When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he give us understanding. And may the Lord bless those who hear, believe, and obey his word. Amen. Boy, David dodged a bullet, so to speak. David avoided bigger trouble than uh, he saw coming. Who knows what troubles you would have been in had the Lord not steered you away. Have there been times when you came close to making an even bigger mistake when there was a difficulty in front of you? Uh, Let me see if I can boil that down. Boys and girls, have you ever found that uh, you were prevented from from getting into more trouble? You were just kind of stopped? Often that's the Lord's doing. I I remember once uh, in our home, my mother was alive and there was a fire on the stove, some kind of grease flare up in the frying pan. And if you wouldn't know any better, you say, oh, I'll put the fire out with water. And to throw a a glass or a pitcher of water on a grease fire would have made it a bigger problem. But my mom, she doused it with some baking soda and it was out instantly. And myself and my kids were all pleased that the trouble that had come did not become a bigger trouble because of wise intervention. Well, we just read this wonderful story, this account uh, from the history of the life of David and his interactions. And what do we see here but God's word telling us about our God and his provisions, his sovereign uh, rescue uh, and help to David. Uh, the, The larger doctrine here is that God in his providence restrains his people from impulsive folly. And God can use a variety of means to do that, to help you. The help for David came not from Samuel, for his days had ended. The help for David in this episode came from a godly woman he had not previously met. And God uses this godly woman to keep David from the guilt of of, uh, angry bloodshed. It's a beautiful picture of what our God can and will do for his people. It's interesting, the, the power of, of uh, uh, Abigail to help with David here, as Dale Ralph Davis says it, uh, God kept David, using Abigail, from walking in Saul's sandals and from turning Nabal's village into another town of Nob. If you remember how Saul killed everyone in Nob, David was, had a head of steam up and was prevented from doing something worse. There's a lot to be learned here. I'm trying to break down the lessons of this big chapter into three. First, we're going to look at a selfish fool and we'll try to learn from him. 
Then we'll look at uh, what David does in his sinful strategy and try to learn from that. And finally, we'll, we'll, the climax will be a wonderful look at Abigail and the Lord's uh, providential provision. So let's first learn from a selfish fool. And I use the word fool because if you hadn't guessed, in Hebrew, the word Nabal, Nabal, uh, means fool. And it may not have been his given name. It may have been the name that he accumulated over life. I'm not sure that most parents would name their children a fool. But uh, that's what the scriptures say. This is what he was called. And we have to remember that in, in the Hebrew worldview, to be a fool was something much more serious than today. We're not talking a cartoon character. I think, believe, 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 that's foolish. No. In Hebrew, to be a fool had a measure of moral bankruptcy. It wasn't just the awkwardness of doing something dumb. But it meant there was a moral vacuum and, and, and sinful behaviors and unwise moves were the norm. So you don't want to be a fool in the biblical sense of the word at all. But I want to expand on that and show you some dimensions of this fool's life that we might learn from him. First, notice that he's a rich fool. That's a, that's a dangerous combination to give that much wealth to a foolish man. And, and the emphasis is there in the scripture to show his abundance of wealth and how it likely uh, enabled him to continue in his folly. A footnote here, I think one reason he had accumulated all that wealth is because he had somehow hooked up with Abigail. I have no idea how those two got married. But I think she's a Proverbs 31 woman, and I think she helped make him profitable in every way. Later on, doesn't she say to David, I wish I had met your servants instead of my husband. Anyways, he's introduced to us as a wealthy fool. At the beginning of the chapter, all those comments about the number of sheep and the number of goats... In fact, the text emphasizes his wealth before it even gets to his name. Isn't that interesting? Showing him to be a big person by wealth, and, and your wealth was measured by your flocks. And he had many servants and abundant possessions, but his name was Nabal. Here's a quick lesson. Accumulating wealth does not make you wise or upright. Notice, too, that he is a selfish fool. He is a selfish fool. Uh, his folly is not just uh, against others, but it's very pro-self. Uh, when David makes this request, hey, can you feed me and these hundreds of guys I got with me? It might seem like an awkward request. If, if somebody just shows up at your door and says, hey, you got extra dinner for me and my family, that would be a little awkward in today's standards. Most Christians would say, sure, come in, we'll share what we have. But in this day, notice how many times in the scriptures it's presented as a reasonable request of David. Where do we see that? Some of you may have picked up on it, but it's through the repetition. Remember, when you're reading biblical narrative, as Bible students, as scholars, we want to look for key words. What was repeated? It wasn't any generic day of the year. This was the day of the shearing. Indeed, he says, I've come to you on a feast day. Shearing, feast, flocks, feast, shearing. Do you get the picture? It was the time when they gathered all the flocks together and they had to take off the coats of wool off the, 
of the sheep and the wool would, would make them rich and, and the little ones that had been born in the spring were likely there and they would take count and it would be uh, like a Thanksgiving type feel and it would be the number one occasion for such a herdsman to be generous, to give a feast for his own servants and to others. This was the exact right time to make that request. There was plenty on the table. There was plenty in the flocks. But this reasonable request made at the right time was met with selfishness. Notice how the narrator reports what Nabal said. Four times he's emphasizing the possessions are his and for him and his people. My, 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 my. Four times in verse 11. You probably saw that. That's the voice of a selfish one, clutching. He probably had a plan to build some bigger barns and bigger, uh, 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 wherever the animals go. Pens, that's the word I'm looking for. And, and so he's very self-centered and he's greedy. And he even pulls out of his hat the number one excuse for people hanging on to their money when there's a needy uh, supplicant asking for help. You know what the number one excuse is for not giving of your wealth? Uh, he says, this person is unworthy. Do you notice the language he uses of David? He says, who is this guy? He's putting the request through his own little litmus test. You're not worthy. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're from. Instead of having basic human kindness or even the ancient obligation of hospitality. Our culture doesn't know the half of it in the ancient world, in the Middle East, to, to show hospitality or to neglect it was one of the greatest sins socially. But Nabal gets himself out of, out of the mess because saying, this is mine. I don't know you. Who are you? This is, you know, so many people are, are leaving home and, 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 and milking the system. I don't know who you are. He has excuses and doesn't offer him a crumb. The Scottish preacher surprised me. I was reading this, and it's a sermon from 150 years ago. William Blakey uh, described Nabal's behavior and his, his excuse this way. He says, any excuse would work rather than telling the naked truth. And the naked truth would have been, we worship our money, and when we spend it, we spend it on ourselves. Wow. 150 years ago, I don't know what the scene was, but that describes America today. It seems. Yes, people can be generous with a GoFundMe or with this or that. Uh, Americans do have a, a generous streak. But our greed and materialism is something we must combat and not give excuses and clutch at our wealth when need is presented to us. I hope we can learn from this selfish fool. This selfish fool. I hope we'll see as well here uh, something that's a little more subtle when we look at the whole book. There's a chapter before and a chapter after this where David's battle is with King Saul. Do you remember previously, a couple weeks ago, David spared Saul's life in a cave. And he did not touch the Lord's anointed. His men wanted to take up the swords. and He says, put your swords down. That's the Lord's anointed. We'll let him go. And David had cut off a corner of his garment and said, Saul, see, I had the opportunity to kill you. I didn't. 
And the chapter after this, there's another opportunity for David to spare Saul's life. The larger picture here is young king, anointed King David is on the run from the, the despised King Saul, whom the Lord is done with. And most scholars see this account, this sample from the life of David. This happened uh, in the midst, maybe similar things happened uh, throughout the life of David. But this is presented here perhaps to give us a picture subtly of King Saul. Maybe you've never thought of that. Nabal is a picture of foolish, powerful, but foolish King Saul. And it's priming us to see that just as Nabal was undone in his folly, so too the Lord has a plan for King Saul. Great opportunity for David to have learned that. But David has his own sinful strategy and it gets in the way. Let's look at our second major lesson today. Not only learning from the rich fool, but let's learn from the sinful strategies of David. And I need to point out, first of all, that David is not a good role model for us here. He seems brave and he seems like he, he would fit in an American movie or sitcom where, uh, you know, the SWAT team or somebody has to go out and get the evil doer. But really what's happened here is David has met with a personal offense and he wants to meet it uh, with capital punishment. And we'll see that his strategy is indeed sinful. He's acting uh, with impetuousness, impatience. He loses his temper. David is sinning here. Let me lay that out. First, first thing we notice is that David strays from the righteous way. He acts contrary to how he acted previously in the last chapter when he showed restraint and did not touch Saul. You remember Saul throwing spears at his body? Real provocation there. And yet he does not take the life of Saul. David shows a righteous restraint and leaves him in God's hands. But here, David's changed his way of operating. What? You're, you're against me? You're insulting me? I'm going to let you have it. Guys, get your weapons. Load them up. Let's go. David is insulted. He's refused decent treatment. And we're told three times, grab the swords, grab the swords, get the swords. The swords become the focus, according to the narrator. That's what was happening. We don't see David praying. We don't see David thinking it through. He's acting in haste. William Blakey, the preacher, said uh, David lost his temper. That is clear. So he's not a model to follow. He strays from his previous way of acting. You can usually tell something's wrong with your uh, behavior when you, you start uh, encountering similar problems in a different way. When you're not bringing the resources, the habits of your upbringing, that you should be prayerful, that you should not act in anger. Notice here as well in verse 21, that's David's sinful strategy uh, came out of his weariness. When I read verse 21, I said, this man is weary of doing well. What was it in verse 21? Let's look. Verse 21, now David had said, so here's a little recap. He's already on his way with his swords, but the narrator tells us what David had been thinking, what he's going to do to Nabal. Verse 21, 
Now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. Remember the scene. This guy with his huge herds was in the same area as David in his hideout, and David's guys had helped guard the flocks. Guard them from who? Well, the robbing Philistines. Remember, they'd do these hit and runs. They'd take stuff. So David's men guarded from thieves and Philistines, probably from wild beasts. So his flocks had prospered. And David says this, surely in vain we've done that. What does it mean to do something in vain? It means it hasn't paid off. It's unfruitful. In vain I have kept myself pure, says one. But it's a temptation. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Perhaps you're weary in praying for that loved one. Perhaps you're weary of, of, of turning the other cheek in the workplace or even in your home. It's easy to grow tired of doing what's right. Because we ourselves are not yet perfect. We live in a broken world. It's hard. I admit it. It's hard. You wouldn't believe it, but your pastor sometimes has difficulty keeping at the doing of good. But David had grown weary. I'm not going to protect his flocks anymore. I'm just going to take what I want. I've, I've worked so hard at doing it that way. I'm going to do it a different way. You see where this thinking comes from. My friends, that's why when Paul writes to the church in Galatia, the church that had been pulled and tugged by, by Jewish false teachers trying to get them to jump through hoops of their own, Paul wrote to those Galatians to help them stay the course and said in chapter 6, verse 9, near the end, he said, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 6 verse 9. That is a verse for this year. If you don't yet have a verse to reflect on for this year, putting it on your calendar, on your fridge, maybe Galatians 6 9 is the verse we need to finish strong, to not grow weary, to remind ourselves. And the context in Galatians 6, I can't go there and preach. We have a big chapter already. But the context is all that Christ suffered for you. The context there, Paul says, you've not yet fought for the right and shed your own blood come on you give up doing good too easily we need to let some of these verses give us a good punch in the gut so to speak god's word has power and truth and god describes it as piercing joints and marrow and god has commanded his disciples do not grow weary. That may be exactly what you need to hear this morning. I need to hear it. Well, learning from David, we said that he was changing his way of operating and he had abandoned the righteous ways of his past. He was weary of doing good. And we see finally from verse 22, he's also overconfident in himself. We just read verse 21. Let's add verse 22 as the text tells us what David was thinking. He said, God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Just the tone and, and, and speaking of yourself in the third person, 
uh, Lord, just take care of all the enemies of David and use me to do it. Uh, it, it smacks of overconfidence. It almost seems he's calling the shots for God. This is what you need to do. We got our swords around our way there. Let's kill them all and get on with it. We need to see David in his overconfidence and take warning from that. To take heed lest we fall. Again, William Blake, he says, How the servant of God may conquer in a great fight. You know, David was doing okay with Saul, right? David behaved and he had the upper hand with Saul. That's a big battle. Blake, he says, The servant of God may conquer in a great fight and yet be beaten in a small fight. The history of all spiritual warfare is full of such cases. You see, he explains, in the presence of a small foe, the spirit of confidence, the sense of security, is liable to leave every avenue unguarded and pave the way for a clear defeat. You're so self-confident, there's a danger in that. And sometimes our confidence is great when we think the foe is so small. Who is this fool? You know, I've kept Saul and his armies at bay. I, I'm going to teach this guy a lesson. He's rude. Hey, rude guy, come here. And, and, and it almost looks like royal road rage. David's going to run this guy down. I'll teach you a lesson. He speeds up. and it, It's wrong. He's overconfident in himself, his assessment and his plan, his strategy. Is this the way you operate? If there's a great trial, yes, I'm on my knees. I'm asking my friends for prayer. But if it's just a little thing, I'm going to handle this. I think I know what they need. There's confidence there, and it easily becomes overconfidence. Do not save God for the big stuff and handle the small stuff on your own. Because you don't know which is which. Abigail later described David and says, do you realize what God's done? You will not live with guilt for all this bloodshed because God stopped you. I wish David hadn't been so overconfident when he took to himself another wife at the end of the chapter. David has still got some lessons to learn here. The polygamy of David is not to be commended, but rather condemned. That's for another conversation, but he's overconfident as he looks at Nabal. And we should heed, hear and heed that lesson. Well, the final lesson here comes from the Lord's provision. We get to look at godly Abigail. And I, I kind of rearranged this so that this third point would be the climax to the sermon in Abigail. And, and just to show you why I did that is Abigail looms so large in the passage. She's a key figure to turn the events and her speech, it's the longest speech in the chapter. And it's the most God-centered speech in the chapter. It makes you think back to the, how the book of Samuel first began with a godly woman named Hannah who got Samuel going. Here, Abigail keeps David from this destructive behavior. God's word, listen, God's word is filled with a lot of godly women that are worthy of our study. And we must learn from them. And you know, by implication, I think God raises up godly women in our fellowships. 
to be a blessing to others. Don't dismiss them. Well, let's learn from God's provision here. The first thing that we're pointed out when we come to Abigail is her godliness, her godly character. Yes, her beauty, but also her godly character. Let's look at that verse. Remember when Nabal was introduced? Back at, what, verse 3? Now the name of the man was Nabal. And anyone listening in Hebrew said the name of the guy was foolish. And the name of his wife was Abigail meaning uh, the joy of her father. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and behaved badly, and he was a Calebite. That expression is is another put-down, but we won't go into it. Uh, The woman was discerning and beautiful, and the word discerning there is a compound of two different Hebrew words, a little bit over my pay grade as I wrestled with it in the Hebrew. Uh, for uh, wisdom and discernment, and they're compounded somehow. So I think it raises it to a superlative, you know, like we, we used to do when we were talking. Oh, no, really, really, this is going to be happening. This is uh, the super-duper version. She is really wise, squared, or to the nth degree. She's a Proverbs 31 woman. She embodies the Proverbs. In fact, this term for wisdom is found not only uh, in um, uh, the, uh, the book of Proverbs many times, the same word for wisdom, but it's found in the Psalm, Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Same word is here. And those who practice it have a good understanding. This is Abigail. She is godly. She is gracious. She is wise. Her godly character is presented to us. And why is that presented to us? So that we pay attention to her and we let her be the model, her take the lead. Notice, too, with her character, uh, how, how do we know that? Well, the narrator tells us. But there was also a clue from the action of the story. Just, just trying to encourage you as Bible students. Was there something in the action that proved that she was Godly and trustworthy? Well, there's the unnamed hero of the story, that one servant in that household uh, who saw what was going to happen, and he goes and speaks to Abigail. We don't know his name, but he's really the hero of the story, isn't he? An unnamed servant who knew his master was a fool, that Abigail was wise and godly. I can't talk to him. He'll smack me. I'll talk to Abigail, and I should for her sake. The servant goes, and in his language and address to her, he conveys that she can be trusted and that she has some godly input to the situation. That's how we know her character is good. Let me bring it to today. Are you someone that others seek out for spiritual counsel? If you've been a Christian a long time, people should be asking. It's very convenient to live your spiritual maturity in your closet. You know so much doctrine, you have a great prayer life, you can recite scripture, but if you're not connected, if there's no koinonia with the body of Christ and you're not giving of yourself, others are not benefiting. There's much to think of there. If God gives you gifts, they are not for you to spend on yourself. If God grows you to maturity, To those who much is given, much is required. 
And in the coming season of the church, not just this church, but in the world at large, mature Christians will need to help hold the hands of younger believers if the days are more difficult and hostile. Notice, too, her wise words and actions, uh, verses 18 and following. You, you, you can see exactly what she's up to here. Boy, when she kicks into gear, uh, it's almost like if this was a film, it would be going in, in fast speed somehow, all these preparations. And she's out the door before you can catch your breath. She made haste, took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, laid them on donkeys. And she said, get going, I'm right behind you. A woman of action. She has wise actions, and she's liberal, she's generous. I don't think she stopped and counted, okay, how many raisins can we share? She's just throwing it all out there. We've got to have enough for all these guys. She's showing generosity and liberality in her actions, and she's quick and organized and clear. A Proverbs 31 woman. But notice as well her words. Her speech from verses uh, 24 to 31, we read it earlier, is filled with testimonies to the Lord. She has the Lord's name on her lips. Not just Lord Adonai, but your Lord Yahweh, Jehovah. She knows the covenant name of God. And she knows about God, and she knows about God's promises to David. And she's the one, in verse 26, who puts her finger on the whole point of the passage. Verse 26. And you notice verse 26 should get your attention because it starts with a solemn vow. If someone is speaking to you, especially in the scriptures, and they begin with a solemn vow, you give them your full attention. And she says, as the Lord lives, that's the vow, because the Lord has restrained you. She was coming, but she's calling David to see the providential hand of God in this moment. I'm an unworthy servant. My husband, he's what he is. But the Lord is here. He is here to restrain you. She appeals to his knowledge of the Lord. She says, receive this present. It's for you and your men. Forgive the trespass here. She calls him really to trust the Lord's plans for you. Surely they will come to pass. The words of Abigail, this godly woman, capture, recapture the heart of David. He hears. And my friends, if it's your spouse or another person who begins to speak truth to you, oh, pray that you have ears to hear. Her wise words lead to a third thing we have to point out here. Abigail displays faith in the Lord. You have faith in the Lord. This is what faith looks like. Faith is willing to Humble yourselves and go into a conflict with words of truth, with words of hope, to share your faith and confidence with another. She's not simply clever and tactful and quick and calm and wise. Abigail is a woman of faith. Verse 26, verse 28, you can see she speaks with this firm persuasion. David, you belong to God. David, you will be king. David, those who oppose you will be going down because the Lord is with you. That's the way faith speaks. When God's will has been made plain. She's not just being a cheerleader. She's not just trying to um, show favoritism or flattery. That's not what this is. This is the voice of faith. She's given him some truth. Truth. 
because God had made it known to her. Well, let me wrap up with just a a few applications, some exhortations, some real actionable points from this big chapter. I hope you're still with me. This is God's word. It's worthy of our attention. Let us not grow weary of listening to God's word. First, a godly person, when they hear God's word, will confess their sins. Saul knew that David would be king. We just saw that in the previous chapter. And he continues his rebellion. He says he knows the truth, but he doesn't do anything with it. The godly person, you and me, as we profess to know and love God and his word, when we hear the truth, when our sins are made known to us, we will listen. David listens. Did you notice that? He listens to this woman. He's got his swords. They're driving at warp speed. And here's this woman in the road. And they'd already been stopped by all these donkeys that had shown up just ahead of her. But she comes and he stops and he listens as she speaks of Jehovah. How do you react to God's word? Is God's word a mirror to you so that you can see yourself clearly? Is God's word a light to your feet and a lamp to your path? David reacted well. I quoted from Psalm 37 in the call to worship, but I didn't read the first few verses. Psalm 37 isn't directly connected to this event because David mentions his old age in Psalm 37. But Psalm 37, I think, had its beginnings in this event. A lot of people think that David pieced together over time these very things. Listen to just the first few words of Psalm 37 on this occasion as David hears and is stopped and lets her go in peace. He says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Fret not yourselves. That may be a verse of the year for some of us. Be not envious of the wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The voice of David in scripture. The voice of David who had learned in that encounter from Abigail. When you hear God's word, do you go forth changed? It's easy to go through the motions. You grab your Bible, you go to church, you get home, and your Bible sits in the same place all week, and then you grab it up because you're going to church again, and then it comes back and sits. And the word in your heart, does it change you? Does it bear fruit? Godly person listens, confesses, he's changed. The second closing word here is the Lord acts for the good of his people. And notice that he acts by putting up a roadblock for David. David never reached Nabal. He didn't lift a finger against Nabal. God put a roadblock in the way named Abigail. And I got a kick out of one commentator who said, God rescues his people from their own stupidity. Okay, that's for me. And he goes on to say this, and it's picturesque and it is spot on. What loving hands construct the roadblocks to our foolishness? What mercy sends frustrations to our purposes? What kindness builds hindrances in our path to save us from our stupidity? 
My friends, be thankful for the things that didn't get worse because of the grace and mercy of God. When you somehow caught yourself from saying that really stupid thing or from doing that stupid thing, praise God that he restrains his people. Praise God for the roadblocks when he sends them. Third, who do we turn from when we do get weary? We turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have someone wiser than Abigail. We have someone uh, with more of God's words than Samuel to be our companion. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear this from Hebrews 12 verse 3. It calls us to look to Christ. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Look to Jesus and don't grow weary or faint-hearted. See how much he endured for you. And not simply to, to give you an example, but to change you and to enable you to be gracious. To enable you to turn the other cheek. To enable you to go the extra mile. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Look to Christ. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hebrews 12, verse 3. It's not a secret. It's the essence of our faith. We're saved by who Christ is and what he has done. We are secured and shepherded by a living Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him and grow not weary. And be ye glad. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you bless it to all who hear it. Give us understanding of these relationships and events that we can draw for ourselves the right applications and trust you and look to you and be thankful. Father, give us faith in Christ. If any here have not faith in Christ, may this be the day. Their eyes are opened. And his arms enfold the wayward one. We pray, Heavenly Father, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.